Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 21, and page 1163 of your pew Bible. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his, for his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want, I want to suffer with him, sharing in his, in his deaths, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose, whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eager, eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he bring everything under his control. Thanks, Paul. So when I was a kid, I used to spend summers, most summers, in Summit County, Colorado. It's a part of the country that Lenny Pikett would refer to as God's country. Right, Lenny? Every time I go out to visit my family out there, I come back and Lenny goes, I don't know, before I go out there, he always says, say hi to God for me. And it is, it's beautiful. And we go out there. Uh, in the summers, we would go up to the mountains, and one of the things that we loved to do was go hiking. And there's all kinds of, looking back on those years as a kid, going hiking with my family, there were all kinds of, all kinds of stories that we have now to hold on to. There's the, there was the hike known as the Pickle Hike, and uh, the Hanleys and some close friends of ours went for a hike. They had kids the same age as us. And the kids, we all got ahead of the, uh, the adults. They were getting kind of slow. So we ran on ahead, and uh, as the story goes, uh, the, the, the adults came up to a fork in the road, and they didn't, they didn't know which way their kids had gone. 
And they sat there for a while trying to figure out what to do. And then they, they put on their detective hats, and they noticed that about 10 feet down one path, there was a little bag in it. And sure enough, they investigated, and it was a pickle that, that they knew I had put in my bag. And it was because I, I happened to drop that pickle uh, right on this path that they knew where to go. So that was the, that was the pickle story. Uh, there was a story one time when we all got caught in this massive lightning storm on the top of a mountain, just kind of came out of nowhere, and we, we were running, well, we felt like we were running for our lives, dodging lightning bolts and all that. But there was this, this one hike where we got, up, we got up early, and we started to climb this massive mountain that, that really sort of dominates the landscape if you're anywhere within 30 miles of, of it, and our house was, and so we could, could see it pretty regularly. And we, we, wanted, we wanted to climb this mountain, and we, we started off going through this thick forest, and then as the mountain as it goes up, right, as the mountain gets higher and higher, and there's less and less air, then there are less and less trees because the trees can't survive. Finally, you get to the tree line where there are now no longer any trees. And once we got to that point, you could look up and you could see the top of the mountain. Now, there was still a long ways to go, but we could see the top of the mountain. And I remember just, and the trail kind of disappeared at that point because there weren't trees and whatnot. And we just knew, well, look, you just, just head straight for the top of the mountain. You could see it sticking up. And I remember just heading towards that mountain. Sometimes you get frustrated because it seems like you would climb and climb and climb and you'd look up and it didn't seem any closer. Uh, then, but then over time... You know, a little bit longer, like an hour later, an hour and a half later, it was getting closer and closer. And we just, we just kept pushing on towards the top of this mountain. And finally, we got to the top of the mountain, and we were, you know, there's this feeling of, we're there. You know, this feeling of release, this feeling of contentment. But then as we peered over it, we actually realized it wasn't the top of the it was a false summit, they call it, sticking out, and there was so much more to go. And so there was this feeling of just oh, contentment and release, and, but, but then the sense of, oh, not quite there yet. And I remember that vividly because I think it sort of functions as a sort of modern-day parable for what life is like, that we go through life and we have these goals that we are after, right? We, you know, I... I, I I want to get my degree, or I, I want to get, you know, I want to make it to this level in my company, and, uh, you know, I want to get married, and I, I want to have kids, and we have, we have these goals, and, and we, we kind of feel like, man, if I could just get there, right, then I'll, then I'll be content, right, then I can kind of rest and just enjoy life, and every, but it's like every time you get there, no matter what it is, there is this incredible sense of relief and joy and contentment. And all of this, and, and yet, then you realize there's, there's something else, right? You, you get married. You, you find that person that you've always wanted to spend your life with, and, and it's fantastic. You've been looking for that for so long. You get them, and, you, and then this is wonderful, but now you want to have kids, right? And so then you, then you, 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 you get a couple of kids. You, you get three kids. And you're like, yeah, yeah, this is great, but actually, I can't wait till one of them moves out. Right, I mean, and, and so step after step, we find this, this contentment and this joy and this release, but there's always, always something more that we seem to be reaching towards. Of course, why is this? Why is it that every peak ends up being some sort of a false summit? 
But of course, as this passage points to, heart of the Christian faith is really that the reason is that we are looking for eternal life in earthly things. We are looking for eternal life in earthly things. We are looking for only what God can give us. And we are looking for it in earthly things. Augustine, uh, the great man of faith from many centuries ago, he spoke about this uh, very poignantly. He says, as he said, there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man. He says that our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, O Lord. Isn't that true that no matter what you're, what you're striving for, it, it never seems to quite fill? And the reason is because you're searching for God in earthly things. And this is, this is more or less what Paul's getting at here when he says in verse 18, for as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Why? Their mind is on earthly things. Whoever these enemies of the cross are, and we'll get into this here in a little bit, who Paul's talking about, but whoever they are, whatever the issue is, from the big picture, what's going on is that they are looking to earthly things when they need to be looking to God. Of course, he goes on in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. When you think about citizenship, to be a citizen of your country, there's this sense in which that is home for you. You can go out, you can travel around the world, but there's always going to be this sense for those, for, for citizens, with so much of what it means to be a citizen, this, this is my home. And what, what Paul is saying is our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, our citizenship is where God is. And now, it's important to know, really, okay, what's the difference between heaven and earth? Thought about that. What is the difference between heaven and earth? And quite frankly, this is really the only difference that actually when you look at what the Bible says about our future eternity, it's actually fairly earthly. In fact, Paul talks about waiting for Christ to come and transform our bodies, renew our bodies. It's, it's actually very earthly. Our ultimate destination, our ultimate hope is a renewed creation. So it is earthly. But what's the fundamental difference between just earth and heaven? It's that God, it's God, right? God is what makes heaven heaven, and God is what will make the new heavens and the new earth heavenly. What we are looking for in all of these attempts is we're trying to find God. Now, what Paul wants us to realize is that in comparison to this, everything else is is pointless in comparison. Relatively speaking, anything else that we pursue is ultimately pointless. This is the discovery that he came to himself, right? He speaks personally from his own personal experience. Back in verse 7, he says, whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my profit, whatever I had, whatever I had accomplished, whatever peaks I had gone towards, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And when it says I consider them rubbish, I think the uh, translators are 
They're being kind of PC here. It's probably a little bit stronger than that. Probably not a word you should say in church, maybe. There's debates, but it's a strong word. He's saying it is rubbish. It is nothing compared to, to knowing God, knowing God which is available to us through Christ. Eternal life, that which we are all striving for, is found in knowing God. Now, here's the thing. Here's what Paul knows. He knows that the church in Philippi, he's writing to the Christian communities in the, in the town of Philippi. He knows that they know this. They know this. He knows that they know this. He knows that they know that it's really all about knowing God. He knows that they know that. And, and so we see this a little bit in verse 16. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. He's saying, you know this. You know this. And, and look, my, my hope is, if you, my hope is if you've, if you've grown up in the church, I hope that what I'm saying to you is not something new, right? If what I'm saying to you is new, God bless you. This is the first time you've, you've heard it this simply, right, that it's about knowing God. Boy, I pray that that truth would penetrate into your heart for the first time. But my, my hope is that most of you here who have been in church and grown up in the church, you know this. And Paul knew that the church at Philippi knew this. So the question is, why, why is he kind of, you know, why does he take time to articulate this? And, and here's, here's what he's saying to them. He says, look, you know this, but don't get distracted. Don't get distracted from what you already know. Don't get distracted from what you know that it's all about. Knowing God, and he says, follow my example. In verse 17, join with others in following my example. Well, what is that example? Well, he, he tells us in verse 13. He says, talking about this pursuit, he says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, right? He's saying, I don't have this down perfectly. I haven't come to, to know God in, in its fullness. But then what does he say? Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And, and I love this imagery. It's sort of this, he's pressing on. And in 1 Corinthians, he uses a similar kind of imagery. There it's very clear he's talking about a runner, like a runner who is running towards the prize. And if, if you think you ever watch the Olympics and you watch, you know, running, uh, they, you know, they all line up and they say, on your marks, get set, and they fire the gun. If you all noticed, they all head in the same direction, right? I mean, just boom, they are all, right, unless you do this uh, for a kindergarten class, which I did. I substitute top for kindergarten, on your marks, get set, go. They all ran in totally different directions. But, but generally speaking, like runners, they, they, they see the goal. And they're folk, and they're not going to get. Dist- they're not going to listen to the crowd on the right. They're not going to listen to the cloud. The crowd on the left. They're not going to allow themselves to be distracted from what is ahead. They're just going to run straight towards the goal. Paul said that. That's that's what he's encouraging the church in Philippi to do. Is, is don't get distracted. What he's saying is don't get distracted by anything that could take the place of God in your. Don't get distracted by anything that that could pull you away, that you could start to look to really for eternal life. 
And this is what he's, he's getting at when he talks about these uh, enemies of the cross. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Now, we'll explain a little bit later probably what he's getting at with stomach. But the, the important thing is he's saying, look, their God is not God. <laughs> their God is something else. Their God is earthly. Of course, you begin to explore what it means for something other than God to be your God, what you realize is that just about anything can become that. Just about anything in this world can become that earthly thing that becomes, that becomes your God. And I've sort of been reflecting on that in the last couple of weeks. And, and even sort of, I had an experience that sort of put this at the forefront of my mind, sort of asking this question, how do you, how do you know if something is becoming a God in your life? How do you know if you're beginning to be drawn towards something, in some sense it's, it's almost becoming more important to you than God? And there are a lot of different signs that indicate that this might be happening. But one I think is actually pretty simple. Here's, here's one. Something might be becoming a God to you if you can't stop thinking about it. You just can't stop thinking about it. Like, what, what, whatever it is, you, you can't stop thinking about. Right, so, we'll talk about something like, uh, okay, we'll, we'll go with money, for example, right? Uh, and the things that money can get, possessions. Right? I don't know if you realize, when you realize it this way, you don't actually have to have hardly any money for money to be an idol. It's not like having money is what makes it an idol. You could have absolutely no money at all, and it could totally be your idol, because all you, you just, you can't stop thinking but, oh, my gosh, if I can just get enough money to get that beach house down the shore, if I can just get enough money to, to get that new car, if I can just, and you, you're just consumed by it. It's virtually all that you can think about. I, I, I was speaking with somebody who told me that he had come to the conclusion that alcohol had started to become a god for him. And it wasn't necessarily that he was drinking too much, although he did come to that conclusion as well. He said the real issue was that he couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, even if, even if he wasn't drinking, he just, he could stop thinking about wanting to have that. You see, it's not even necessarily whether or not you're indulging in it per se. The question is, how much are you thinking about it? And one of the things that emerges, this is uh, something that God showed me over the last couple of weeks through a very bizarre experience is that when you come to realize that, that when you're just consumed, you can't stop thinking about something, that that might reveal an idol in your life, one of the things that you realize is that it's not just desire that is an indication of what your idol might be. Fear as well can reveal what are idols to you. Because oftentimes we're just as consumed thinking about things that we're afraid of as we are things that we desire. This, <laughs> this came upon me. So, Laura and I were able to take the kids away for a couple of weeks, just the last couple of weeks. We went up into the Adirondacks, and we spent some time in this beautiful place, uh, this little cabin right by this little lake, beautiful mountains and a beach. And, and, and the, the, first, the first week, uh, really, it was great. We just didn't, we, well, we sat around and we read, and the kids played and swam. It was It was unbelievable. And, I, you know, I read my usual fare. I'm, I'm happy to report that the galaxy is still safe because Captain Tyler Barron of the USS Dauntless has saved the galaxy from the Union, the ugly Union Empire, always trying to mess things up. 
Captain Baron, once again, sixth book in a row. He has managed to save the galaxy. That was fun. Then I also read a book uh, about, actually, this is interesting, about Custer, General Custer, and Crazy Horse, uh, this leader of the American Indians, and it was this, talking about this period in history when we were expanding west, and there was all this conflict with the Native Americans. And I, learned, I started to learn a tremendous amount about the Native American culture. In fact, I got so submerged in Native American culture that at one point, my wife asked me, she's like, you know, what do you think we should name our, our, you know, our child about to have this daughter, you know? And I'm like, Shh, black buffalo woman. Absolutely. Right? This is crazy yours' love interest. She, she didn't seem to go for it. I don't, I don't know. I think she thinks that Grace and Caleb will be jealous if uh, we go. Anyway, so, so I read this book on, on Custer and uh, Native Americans. And that was in the first week. Then in the second week, I took some time just to go away and spend time with the Lord. I went away, uh, and uh, again, by this lake, and I, I had this place just sitting out, looking across the lake, and I just spent several days just praying and meditating. And there's this verse that sort of, it just keeps coming back to me. I memorized it about seven years ago. Psalm 89, 15 through 17, it says, Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord, who, who live life in your presence, O Lord. And there was this one day when I was sitting and I was looking out over this beautiful lake with these green trees emerging in the background and then this beautiful mountain up in the back. And I was just sitting there and I was just reflecting upon I'd been there for an hour, hour and a half, just really close communing with the Lord. And then I, I, I saw a, a, a bee kind of buzz by. There's bees around here. That's how it is in the mountains. Oh. Blessed are those who learn to another bee just kind of buzzes by. Another bee. And then, and then now I'm like kind of zeroing in here. I'm like, <laughs> that seems like a higher proportion of bees flying by than would normally happen. And then it hit me. Like I zeroed in. And I had been like I had been looking out over this lake, and there was this tree that was stretching out over the lake, not 10 feet from me. And right there, right in front of me, is this massive beehive like the size of a basketball, and it looked like LaGuardia Airport, right? Just, bzz, 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 and all these bees flying. And listen, you got to understand about Kevin Hanley. Kevin Hanley does not do well with bees, right? I got stung when I was like two years old, and I don't remember being stung, but my instincts remember being stung. And it's, it's, it's not pretty. I got stung by a bee about 40 years ago out here in the parking lot, and uh, my wife thought it was one of the funniest things she'd seen in years. I flailed and screamed like a little child. Fortunately, there was like on a Tuesday and nobody but my wife saw it. I, I, don't, I don't do well with beats. So here I am, like locked into the presence of the Lord. And whoosh, all of this fear just hits me. And I'm like, this is, this is silly. And I'm like, so I try to, blessed are those who have learned it. You know, and I'm just like, ugh. And, and then I started, I kind of get a little bit mad. I'm like, come on, God. I came out here to spend time with you. Like, now I'm, come on, you got these bees here. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Oh, and, and I'm like, he's ruining my time with the Lord. And, and then it's like it hit me. I'm like, I'm like, 
You know, Kevin, is it possible God wants to show you something through this? And I thought, oh my gosh, wow. Okay, and then I, then I started thinking about it rationally. I'm like, I've been sitting here for an hour and a half. These bees haven't done anything to me. And, and here's what then this began to emerge. I can't realize what happened. In that moment, you see, that beehive became an idol. Because I was ascribing to it power I should not be ascribing. I was ascribing to it something that, that really, this fear of what it could do to me, and honestly, that's a fear I should only ascribe to God. Because in the end, it's really only God that has the power to give or to take away. And I was, I was you know, I was ascribing to this be, look, I mean, there's, I'm not saying that fear is entirely bad, just like desire isn't entirely bad. We are earthly creatures. God gives these things to us, but the problem is we allow them to get completely out of proportion to the point now where, again, we ascribe to them power over us that we should only ascribe to God. And I realized, I'm like, Kevin, if you go somewhere else to spend time with God, you've missed the whole point of this. And so, praise the Lord, I was able to just sit there and say, God, you are my God, and it sounds really silly, it's a bunch of bees, and I spent the rest of the day there, just totally ignored them, they never bothered me, right? But I want you to think about that, for, that's kind of a silly analogy, but here's what I think, isn't it true that many of us, it's difficult for us to connect with God because there's always this fear, something we are afraid of, that just always seeds beneath the surface, and it hinders our ability to really rest in the Lord. It's fear about our finances, fear about our health, fear about whatever it is. And what I want to say is, you've got to realize you are ascribing to that God-like powers that only God has. See, when you realize that whatever you're thinking about, consumed by, is as much an indication of idolatry as desire, you come to realize that fear is as much of an indicator of idolatry as is Desire. So, so, so desire and fear, these are two indicators of idolatry. And this is one of the things you can reflect on. What are the things I can't stop thinking about, either because I want it or because I'm terrified of what it could do to me? You can be thinking about that. But then I want to unpack what I think this passage begins to show us is that when we look to other gods, we, we are always looking to, for one of two things, okay? We are looking to whatever it is, for one of two things that we should be looking to God for, and here's what it is. We are either looking for pleasure or for validation. These are the two things that whatever it is, you are always looking for. You're either looking for pleasure or you're looking for validation. And I would say, roughly speaking, that in this passage, okay, so in this passage, there's a significant amount of debate in terms of who Paul is addressing when he refers to the enemies of the cross. And roughly speaking, I mean, there's a lot of debate, but the scholars kind of agree it comes down to two camps. Now, there's sort of two camps within the early uh, Philippian community. And basically, what I would suggest is that these two camps represent two different forms of idolatry. One is those who are seeking validation through earthly means, and the others who are seeking pleasure, right? So those who are seeking pleasure through earthly means are those who are known as the antinomians, right? These are the ones that Anti-nomos is the Greek word for law. And these are the folks that are saying, look, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to listen 
to what God commands uh, because we're saved by grace. And so that means we can just try to go find pleasure in anything we want. So we're going to find earthly pleasure through earthly things as the antinomians. And then you had the Judaizers, and these were the ones who were saying, no, there are all of these laws that you've got to follow. But really what it became for them, it was an earthly means to earn their validation. It was all about them demonstrating themselves through their efforts to be righteous and morally superior. So these are the two, these are the two camps here, but they represent what we all do when we look to earthly things, is we either look for validation or we look for pleasure. And here's the thing. What's interesting about this is that two people can have the same God and be looking to that same God for different aspects of what that God can give you. So I'll give you an example of this. Let's imagine you've got two guys. You've got Jim and Bob. We'll go with Jim and Bob. And they both save up and buy themselves a new Lamborghini. And they, I mean, their whole life, they have just been consumed thinking about getting a Lamborghini. When they were a kid, they had Lamborghini posters on their wall, this whole kind of deal. Finally, they both buy themselves Lamborghinis. Now, Jim, here's the thing about Jim. What Jim loves about that Lamborghini is what it feels like when he's going 120 miles an hour down the parkway. I mean, he just loves the way it feels. So when Jim takes his Lamborghini out, he goes at like 3 in the morning right? Because he doesn't want anybody to be around. He wants the road to be open. He just wants to be able to fly down the road. Now, Bob, on the other hand, he likes to take his Lamborghini out during rush hour. Uh, So he's going along five miles an hour. And the reason why is it's not so much that he loves how it feels. He loves the way people look at him. He loves the way people sort of treat him as royalty as he's driving this Lamborghini. You see, They both have the same idol. One's after validation, and one is after pleasure. And both of them will be consumed by it, right? Both of them, they're like, they're both both probably terrified to drive. They're afraid it's going to get wrecked, afraid somebody's going to scratch it. Anytime they go somewhere and they park it somewhere, and they're inside having lunch, you know, they're always looking out the window. They're consumed by it, but they're seeking different things. I think all of us, we tend to lean in one direction or the other. Ultimately, we probably seek both of these, but, but you'll notice that you'll find yourself tending to lean towards one direction or the other. This can be with any kind of idol. Uh, your career. Some people, uh, you know, they, their career is their idol, and really what it is is they just love what they do. They love it. They, they love their job. They love their work. And like retirement freaks them out because then they're not going to do that anymore. So their career has become an idol. It's become pleasure for them. Others' career is all about status. It's all about getting to whatever, whatever level of, you know, whatever you can get to. Parenting, right? Parenting can become idolatrous in two different directions, right? You got, to, you got two parents, and, and they both want their kids to be well-behaved. One of them wants their kids to be well-behaved so that they can sit and read a book while they're on the beach and they don't have to worry about their kids. The other parent wants their kids to be well-behaved because they want people to, to think that they're good people, that they're good parents. It's about their status. It's about their recognition. Same idol, but they're seeking different things. One validation, one, one in pleasure. And people can approach religion the same way. You see, religion itself can become an idol. In fact, that's 
what we discover is going on in this passage. Religion itself can become an idol. And in fact, I would suggest that religion can do both things. People can look to religion both for validation and both for pleasure. But here's what you need to realize. In both cases, they're not looking for God. They're either looking for validation or they're looking for pleasure. You know, I've been reflecting on this, I think, just kind of watching what I see happening in America. And this is not based on any kind of like hard evidence or anything, but I see sort of these trends where, I would say this, in America, religion has always had a tendency to be idolatrous. It always has been. But I would say that there's been a little bit of a shift in general. Now, we all can struggle with different sides of this, but in general, there's been a shift. I would say that in previous generations, the temptation was to use religion for validation. And part of the reason for this was that in our country, there was a time when it was, it was like really respected to go to church. Right? I mean, if you were like an elder in a church, then everybody in the community you know, looked upon you with, with a sense of awe and respect. And so people would go to church and they would serve in church in order so that people would think well of them. And really, it was all about their own validation and using religion as a means for that. Now, now we live in an age where, quite frankly, a lot of people just don't really care if you go to church. They're, they're not impressed that you're an elder in church. Uh, They're not like looking upon you with all this respect. And in all honesty, there's an element of that which I think is really good. Because it means that that people hopefully aren't getting involved in church for their own validation. They're not doing it to kind of feed their own egos. But there's a flip side of this. What I do see happening in the American church at large is now we look to it for pleasure. And what I mean by this is there's this whole notion of entertainment. Like everybody wants to be entertained in, in church, right? You know, entertain me. And, and it's kind of like, you know, in previous generations, if the service was terrible and boring, you still came because you were coming just so that everybody would think well of you. But now if I'm not getting validated, well, dang it, I better not get bored in church. I, I better get some pleasure out of this. And in both cases, what's going on? In neither case are we actually. The purpose of religion is not to validate you. It's not to entertain you. The purpose of the religious practices that we engage in is to connect you with God. And then in God, you find your pleasure and you find your validation. This is what the Apostle Paul came to discover. The Apostle Paul personally understood this And I think for Paul, what it was is it was about validation. He was exactly this kind of individual who was using religion to kind of build himself up and make himself seem superior. This is what he's getting at when he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, and in this case, he's going to start talking about religion, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Basically, Paul, in this short short sentence here, is giving his religious resume and saying it is unparalleled. If anybody should feel validated by their religious performance, it's me. And what he's come to realize is that it's absolutely Because in all of that religion, there was one thing that was missing. God. 
Friends, what are the idols in your life? What are the things that you find your heart drawn towards? What are the things that you can't stop thinking about? Either to validate you or to give you pleasure. Friends, you know this. That leads nowhere. Our church, we have three core values that I've kind of brought into this church from the beginning. These core values are being gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly faced. And one of the things I'm looking to do this year is I'm going to try to give you all just one vision for the application of each of these three values. Just one thing for us to focus on. And what I want to focus on right here is is gospel-centered and sort of I want to put this out there for us this year. What principle emerges out of this value of being gospel-centered? And it's simply this. Because of the gospel, we can come You see, the heart of the Christian faith is this. You don't have to seek validation anywhere because God loves you so much that he died on a cross to forgive you of whatever failures you have. Whatever it is that you're striving for and you're failing at and you know you're failing at it, the heart of the gospel is God loves you anyway. You don't have to achieve whatever that is in order to be validated. And you know that even when you achieve it, there is always another being. Friends, my prayer for us is that we would come to know God. And in knowing God, we would know that we are eternally validated on the basis of His grace. And because of that, we can enter fully into His presence. And as we enter into his presence, we find all the joy and all the pleasure that we could ever need. Friends, let's make this a year when we get back to what we know is the heart of the gospel. And that is that it is about knowing God. You pray with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the gospel. You are a God who has come for us. You are a God who offers us everything that we need. God, may this be a year in which we turn from those idols in our lives. With our hearts, we turn to you and we find rest in you. God, we need rest. We need rest in the midst of a world that is not at rest. God, I pray this would be a year in which we find that. Pray this in Jesus' name.